I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Since the 11th of September 2001, commentators describe two periods, the time before 9-11 and the post-9-11 era. Such was the impact of that fateful day in world history. 20 years on, how has the world changed? Did America overreact? Was the war on terror a success? Author and Daily Telegraph leader writer Tim Stanley joins me, Stephen Edgington, to discuss the fallout of the worst attack on US soil since Pearl Harbor. Tomorrow will be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I'm going to ask that generic question that everyone asks about 9-11, and not just journalists, but where were you? What was your reaction at the time? I was on holiday in Indonesia, and such was the world of 2001 that for a couple of days I didn't know it had happened. There wasn't even a television in my hotel room. and It was a good hotel. I think it was four-star. It wasn't until we got on a plane and went to Hong Kong, I was travelling with my mother at the time, and booked ourselves into our hotel. So at no point between the plane landing and getting into the hotel room did we hear anything about it. It wasn't until we got in and Mum put on the TV that she said to me, they're showing the same film on every channel. She thought it was a film. And we couldn't work out what was really going on. I think there was the BBC News and possibly CNN. But between that and a couple of foreign language stations, I ran downstairs and picked up a newspaper. It was a good, I think, 24 to 48 hours after the event that we discovered what had happened. And then when you walked away from the hotel room, you could escape it. There was no iPhone. There were no TV screens everywhere bombarding you with news. That was how different the world was 20 years ago, that something which drew the world much closer and transformed it, undeniably... You could also conceivably actually have missed it. So by missing it by a couple of days, do you think that sort of isolated you from the initial emotional shock? Because people talk at the time, I mean, I was only like one years old, so I can't really remember it. But people at the time talk about, you know, crying and seeing these awful images on, on live TV of people dying in front of their eyes. Were you shielded by that initial shock in a way? Absolutely. It wasn't real time. It was something that you saw in retrospect and had to piece together from different sources what had happened. And it took us a while to actually figure out what had taken place. I noticed also that the nature of the commentary perhaps wasn't quite as people remembered it. There was a significant body of people in Europe who felt that America was paying the price for its foreign policy up until that time. 
And there were some talking heads who were saying that. That's been forgotten. It was arguably in very poor taste. But I, I felt much more clinical and objective then than I do now, I think. And to be entirely honest, it wasn't until we had to fly back from Hong Kong to Britain that really the nature of the way in which the world had changed came home to me because as we were boarding the plane, we, were suddenly, we suddenly felt very vulnerable and there was extra security. I think that was when I really felt, yeah, the world has altered. That was your reaction to the event. I want to ask about America's reaction. Mm. Do you think that George Bush at the time overreacted to 9-11? Nobody could overreact. The question was, did he react in an appropriate way? There was an excellent BBC documentary about this, uh, which in, in interviewed him and got his real-time reaction and showed footage of him reacting. And his response seemed to be anger. So it, it was this immediate reaction of something's got to be done to show that we are responding to this and that people will feel pain as a consequence. And within 24 to 48 hours, they had formulated a foreign policy on the basis of the 9-11 attacks, which was the Bush doctrine of anyone who harbors terrorists is a potential target for American justice. Now, you could argue that the nature of technology now, the, the need to respond more dramatically and swiftly to events, necessitated a quicker policy response than would have been the case in times past. But was it appropriate to make up policy on the hoof like that? I really don't think so. I think that was a huge mistake because it obligated the United States to interfere with nation states. And crucially, it put Iraq on the map. Again, in that documentary, you see Bush and his advisors discussing, could this be Iraq? They were already thinking in those terms, which isn't just a Bush obsession. It was a hangover from the Clinton years as well. People forget that the Clinton administration bombed Iraq. Uh, they forget that the Clinton administration in 1998 uh, took out a pharmaceutical factory in Sudan in response to al-Qaeda attacks. Foreign policy was already gearing in that direction. But it's this idea that in an immediate response to a traumatic attack like that, you might immediately think you have to write a policy with well-shattering implications Yes, I think I would call that an overreaction. Iraq is separate to Afghanistan, and, and which has become much more uh, relevant recently with the chaotic withdrawal we've seen with President Biden. And an interesting counterfactual would be that if Iraq never happened and Afghanistan was the only war that America started after 9-11, for example, people at the time or uh, early on in that war argued that Afghanistan was a successful war right. and that they'd beaten the Taliban and that this was a you know, mission accomplished and everything else. Right. Let's say that Iraq didn't happen and that it was only Afghanistan. Do you think people would now view the war on terror as being a success if that was the case? No, because I suspect we'd have ended up leaving Afghanistan in the same terms that we have done, regardless of Iraq had happened. Now, the argument of Democrats, including people like Al Gore, was that Afghanistan was justified. And if Bush hadn't done Iraq, they could have focused all their resources and their time on Afghanistan. That, that, that's their argument. Uh, I, I think the mistake was having gone after al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, even if that was a legitimate action, they should have got out and left the country alone. And the fact that 20 years later that's happened suggests that the 20 years in between was not a success, no matter how much money you'd have thrown at it, because the country wasn't ready to build the kind of democracy, the kind of nation state that the Americans wanted to leave behind. 
They were trying to build something on sand. It, it wasn't going to work. Therefore, I don't believe that any amount of time or resources or focus would have made a difference to that mission. And as I say, the fact that after spending $2 trillion, which is still a hill, more than a hill of beans, to having spent all that money, having lost so many lives, and you still can't hold on to the country, that suggests to me that that experiment was never going to work. Were we repeating foreign policy mistakes from years past? And people have been comparing the recent withdrawal from Afghanistan to Saigon and the withdrawal of American troops from Vietnam. At the time, military leaders were saying, look, we're only a few more years, a few more months away from beating the Viet Cong. We're almost there. One more push. And the same thing in Afghanistan. Leaders were saying back in 2011, you know, we just need a few more people. We need a few more, a bit more money. And we've almost won the war. So is America sort of repeating these mistakes over and over and over again? There is almost always this debate in military terms. A similar thing happened with the Soviets when they invaded Afghanistan. There were some within the Soviet Union who said what you need to do is go all the way up to the border with Pakistan, even slightly beyond to destroy the Islamist camps beyond that. And they argued that because the Soviet Union settled upon a limited engagement, uh, they didn't carry out the strong early military strike that was necessary to win this thing. A similar argument was made with Vietnam, that because President Johnson was too worried about losing support back home, he wouldn't go all the way. He wouldn't unleash all the military force. There's always this debate, but of course it's sort of self-defeating. You don't do those things because they're totally unacceptable to the population back home or because the country can't afford to do it. There's a reason why you don't do those things. You could do what General MacArthur wanted to do and use nukes in the case of Korea, but if you did that, heavens, you'd blow up the entire world, let alone losing the support of Americans back home. So what they wanted wasn't necessarily on the table, and policymakers are constrained by narrow objectives because even they know that you can't go all the way. How how much are you willing to throw at this? Well, you could throw everything at it, but that would be totally unacceptable to people back home. Let's take a step back and look at the outcomes of 9-11 in terms of foreign policy. We've talked about Iraq and Afghanistan. Has the West essentially wasted the last 20 years money, hundreds, even thousands of lives of Western soldiers, but also hundreds of thousands of lives of civilians in those countries as well? Do you take this sort of pessimistic view? We've just wasted the last 20 years. It's been a complete disaster. Yes and no. There are two dimensions to this. One is security. The other is more philosophical. Philosophy, a waste. Security, possibly not. Bush will always say there hasn't been another major attack on US soil. There have been some attacks on US soil, by the way. It's not quite correct to say fighting them over there meant that the war didn't come to us. There were attacks on US soil, and there were attacks on European soil, including in 2005 in the UK. So in terms of security, not a complete success, but also in in many ways a success, undeniably. The West probably had to respond to Al-Qaeda, had to respond to the threat of terrorism, and you could argue that, that it's chalked up some success in that regard. In terms of the philosophy, though, have we remade the Middle East in our image? Absolutely not. And most of the countries that are experimented or flirted with democracy, including most recently Tunisia, have gone back to dictatorship in some form. In the case of Assad, he discovered that if you're willing to fight brutally enough, you can cling on. In other states, you have just a collapse of the state and either Shia militants have taken over as in Iraq or fanatics have moved in. So I would argue that if the goal was to produce a new Middle East that would be peaceful, stable and democratic, that wouldn't be a hotbed of future terrorism, yes, it's a failure. The most powerful example of that is Afghanistan. We went in to remove the Taliban. The Taliban are back. We went in to remove a terror threat to the United States. Well, a terror threat, ISK, is back. And in fact, it carried out an appalling attack just as the Americans were starting to leave. So that suggests philosophically, yes, it has been a waste of time. 
Famously, Obama's defense secretary, Robert Gates, said of Joe Biden that he got almost every single foreign policy issue wrong in the last 40 years. Is this latest Afghanistan debacle simply the last one, a sort of long line of mistakes that Joe Biden has made in terms of foreign policy choices? I take the view of Tucker Carlson that he did the necessary thing in the ugliest way possible. There were individual cock-ups, and I think they do lead back to Joe Biden. Tactical battlefield decisions like abandoning Bagram Air Base, leaving equipment behind, although, by the way, a lot of the equipment was wrecked by the West as it fled, so it's possibly not quite as useful as some people report. Uh, But there were individual tactical decisions. There was an intelligence failure or a decision by Biden to believe the intelligence that supported his argument that you need to leave as fast as possible. Either way, the way in which America got out was bad and was Biden's responsibility. The long-term strategic decision, should we stay or should we go? Well, Donald Trump ran on that as well. So I don't see how conservatives can criticize Biden for deciding that America must get out. But also he was right. And he said something which I thought was very powerful. He pointed out that he was the fourth president to prosecute this war, and he refused to hand it on to a fifth. That's a rare example of leadership. I actually admire that. To say, I'm going to take a really controversial decision which will quite possibly end not just in a loss of American power, but also lives. But I'm going to do it because I don't want my children and grandson to inherit this. That was both a bold decision, and also it's the decision of a man who has had family serving in the military. He knew that it's not an academic issue. It's young men and women being called up to serve. He refused to pass that on. So tactically a disaster. Strategically, I think Biden did the right thing. How do you assess his presidency more broadly, putting Afghanistan perhaps to one side, or you can include it if you want? He was elected for one purpose only, to beat Trump, because the Democrats calculated that he was the least offensive candidate running that year. So he is instrumental. He does have a political personality. He very much does. And in some ways it's liberal, in other ways it's quite conservative. He was regarded by many as the credit card shill for the senator from Delaware who would vote every time in defense of whatever the credit cards wanted, because so many of them are based in Delaware. But really, he's reached the end of his abilities, uh, the end probably of his physical capabilities. Not that everyone at that age is incapable of doing the job, but Joe Biden is. And he was elected as this cipher. The question was a cipher for what? For beating Trump? Yes. But then to actually do what? Into that vacuum has filled a number of long-term goals of the Democratic Party, some of which are radical, some are good, some will transform the country. But I don't really sense that they are his project. I think they are people projecting onto him what it is they want him to do. And when you see him intervene, as in the case of Afghanistan, to do what Joe really wants to do, what's interesting is the stubbornness, the removal from advice. Many people thought, I've said cipher, but but that doesn't mean he, he has no mind of his own. That doesn't mean that someone else is running the administration. A lot of people cooked up strange conspiracy theories like, oh, Kamala Harris is the real power behind the throne. Well, this is proven she's not. There is a pilot. The problem is, is the pilot is just old and inept. How likely is it that we see a Joe Biden second term as president? (laughs) I think think it's highly unlikely. Look, I'm not squeamish about this. Uh, Prejudice towards the old. Well, we all eventually get old. I, 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 I hate the young. Uh, and I was one yet once. How dare you? I know. I, I, <laughs> I say, I, 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 this, this is a prejudice towards a group that we will all eventually become. And if you look back over American history, age, infirmity, 
and the body of the president have always been controversial subjects. That's why FDR's disability was willingly hushed up by the press. That's why when Eisenhower had a health scare just before his re-election, suddenly people were wondering whether or not the Democrats could win because voters were nervous about Richard Nixon replacing him in the White House. That's why there was so much talk about Ronald Reagan supposedly being gaga in the 1980s. So it's always been a controversial, it's it's always been a point of discussion. And in the case of Joe Biden, it's self-evident. Would he run again? Well, he'd be well into his 80s. I'd be very surprised if he did. Anticipating that he won't, that would imply Kamala Harris, although I suspect that the primary would be contested. Can we look forward, and I mean that in the literal sense, to a Kamala Harris presidency? Uh, Possibly, although the wheels have slightly come off that project because she's really struggled to define herself and what it is she stands for. Conservatives slightly misrepresent her image in this country. For some reason, British conservatives have interpreted her as a figure of the left. I think it's because she's a woman of colour. Actually, within the democratic base, she was loathed by the Sanders people uh, because of her positions on law and order and things like that. One American friend said to me that her daughter said, you realise she's a cop? (laughs) <laughs> that's the perception is actually that Kamala might be too right wing. Where does it leave global Britain? Because we've just seen 450 people die, British troops die in Afghanistan in that war, um, spent billions and billions of pounds in Afghanistan. And we basically weren't consulted on America's withdrawal. It took 36 hours for Biden to even pick up the phone to Boris Johnson. So it seems, as you say, the special relationship is on its knees or if it ever existed in the first place. Where does this leave us as a country? What, what, what's our, I mean, Boris Johnson talks about global Britain so much, but what does that mean? Global Britain is a marketing slogan for selling teapots to foreigners. It's branding. Unless you're willing to spend the money to build a defense system that is equivalent to America or China's or Russia's, which we're not because we couldn't and we wouldn't want it anyway, then you are not global Britain in the sense of a major power capable of projecting itself and capable of taking the lead on issues like Afghanistan. We have to be realistic about that. Global Britain is much more about us internally, how we feel about ourselves and perceive ourselves, than it is about how the rest of the world sees us. Now, there are some conservatives who wish to delude themselves about that. And I understand why. They love their country and they perceive Britain's success as rising or falling depending upon how it is seen overseas. Partly the product of being an island nation. I, on the other hand, am quite happy with decline and with being a second or a third rate power. That doesn't bother me at all because I'd rather we were at peace, I'd rather we looked after our people well, and I'd rather we had security. So my answer to the question, where does this leave Global Britain? I'm not sure it particularly matters. Global Britain is things like us going into Iraq when we were told, incidentally, that we didn't have to, but we chose to because Tony Blair wanted us to be Global Britain. He wanted Britain to be involved. Well, there are some foreign policy decisions taken in the last 20 years where I wish we could have done an analysis of our power potential, as well as the morality of the thing, and said, Global Britain's going to sit out this one. We're going to be Little Britain for a little while. I don't think that would have been a bad thing. Do you think it's hard for politicians to be honest about these things? I mean, It's it, impossible. It, it... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Boris Johnson said that, I'm sure he would get absolutely slaughtered. Yeah, he would. But he wouldn't say that because he doesn't believe that, because he does believe in the swashbuckling, free trading, uh, naval power of Great Britain. That, that's what he does believe in. And, and as I said, I, I understand where that comes from and I respect it. It's that Thatcherite thing of refusing to believe that Britain is over uh, and refusing ever to accept that our power is in any way diminished on any level. If the perception of the country still matters to you, and I'm not, it really doesn't personally matter to me very much, there are other ways of succeeding and winning that we don't make nearly enough of a fuss about. I think we are a little too obsessed with foreign policy and military action and being able to go abroad and do stuff. I think it's strange that the British are oddly underwhelmed by things like their Olympic success. The amount of money and time and money we've poured into working on our Olympic performance, and it's worked. Britain is a world leader for sport and athletics. We should be proud of that. That's global Britain. That's a form of power. And it's a power where we get to win. So you're a soft power man. Insofar as I'm interested in the projection of power at all, I would prefer it to be soft, yes. But what is it you want to do? Let's talk about American power, because this is... <laughs> no, I, I, I want to ask you... Oh, you literally what, want me No, to... I want you to... What is it <laughs> that we want to do with global Britain? That's a very good question. I don't know. I mean, Boris Johnson basically wants to set up a load of free trade deals and form a sort of axis against China and sort of be a, le- a global leader in promoting right, free value, ax- trade and but that free- axis freedom China, and all these, you know. That axis against China, if it was us and the Netherlands and Norway, I mean, what does that mean? There's nothing we can do. The axis against China only works if it's America. That's the only, so, so that's not global Britain. That's NATO or America, and we're tagging along. I think Boris Johnson's argument, I think he says that, you know, we, we see in America's power decline. We see in America forget their, their core values of freedom and free trade and globalization. And mm. Britain should be a world leader in promoting these things. OK, so we can promote them, but, we, won't, but we, don't, we simply don't have the money or the manpower to actually project them. The only other power block that we could do that with is Europe, and we voted to leave the EU, so which I'm, I'm all for. That doesn't bother me, because, again, I ain't that kind of internationalist. I'm, I'm not in favour of getting involved. I don't want to part of a horrible great big power block that tell me what to do. But we walked away from an opportunity to set up an alternative block to the United States. So there, right now there is no alternative to America. So when one says global Britain versus China, that actually means America. But also there are all sorts of conflicts that people seem to pick where they say we should be fixing that. I'm just not sure I want to fix it. I'm not sure I want to build a democratic, liberal capitalist society in Afghanistan. I'm, I'm not sure I have the right to do that. I'm not sure that's Britain's moral responsibility. And if it's not, then there's no point in global Britain. Are you a sort of happy declinist in that sense? The label decline 
is obviously pejorative. But if you actually judge British success by things like income, equality, by people's lives improving, by them living longer, the happiest time to have been British is actually the period after we got rid of the empire. It's actually the 60s, 70s and 80s. That's when you had genuine social mobility in this country and working class people actually doing better and for the first time owning a stake in the system. And that was after we surrendered this global role. So the period which is labelled decline, if you actually judge it by any metric that matters to the British people, is a period in which their lives got immeasurably better. Period since, since 2001 of us global Britain going out fighting. The, I'm not saying it's because of the global Britain stuff, but the last 20 years has been the period of stagnating social mobility. So I'd rather we focused on ourselves. I want to talk about the American empire, and I think this is a really interesting topic. Will 2021 be seen as the beginning of a new era, the end of the American empire? Oh, heavens, you just can't tell. And, and it's impossible to say because you can't foresee that. And lots of people are writing it off. I mean, look, it can, it can go one of two ways. One, yes, you're correct. That because America has withdrawn from Afghanistan and the way it withdrew, it has shown weakness and that China and Russia will now be far more aggressive and will take advantage of that and will call America's bluff, particularly on Taiwan, which would be terrible because that's a line in the sand I'm not convinced the West is willing to hold, which would be a real tragedy because that is a developed democratic capitalist country we should stand up for. That's one answer. The other answer is that actually this was a tactical retreat in order that you can strategically put yourself in a stronger position later on. Joe Biden's private argument for leaving Afghanistan is that was an open wound, bleeding resources and personnel. With that over, we can now focus on containing China. So it could go the other way. It could actually be that, as with Vietnam, Vietnam looked like the end of the American empire when Saigon was abandoned in 1975. Just five years later, you have Ronald Reagan in the White House and the Cold War ends by 1991. So it could be that actually this tactical retreat turns out to be a stroke of strategic genius. We just can't guess at this stage. So you think that there's uh, perhaps an opportunity for a new president to turn this around? I mean, America on the world stage at the moment looks pretty humiliated. It's just spent 20 yeah. years in Afghanistan and the people that they went in there to destroy are now back in power. So you think that perhaps, you know, America is not on a perm isn't on a permanent decline, but someone can come back and save this situation? It's definitely taken a dip. It needs fresh leadership. That's true. But yes, I do think it can be turned around and not just turned around by politics. America still leads when it comes to economics and culture. It predominates. Yeah, it's got a real problem with leadership and it's got the inheritance of these bad decisions taken in 2001. But it can fix all of that. And America throughout its history has shown an amazing capacity for reinvention, which is hardwired into the country and the culture and which Europe doesn't really have. But America has it in spades. America seems to be going through a process of massive division. And if you look at opinion polls, Republicans and Democrats have never been further apart in terms of their beliefs. They've become more tribal. Donald Trump obviously perhaps was a symptom rather than a cause of recent events, but he's definitely added, I think, to that problem. So do you think America faces a sort of crisis of self-confidence, and a crisis of huge division? And we can talk about identity politics and wokeism and, all the, and social media and all these things. Has that led to a huge problem that America may not be able to overcome? Yes. You asked about the, the cultural consequences of 9-11. It's important to stress that that division was there in November 2000 with that extraordinary election. That was the election that marked the division in America. 
Yes, it does have a crisis of self-confidence. It is really hamstrung by its divisions. But I can only stress from a historical perspective that we have been here before, be it the 1860s when there was literally a civil war, the 1920s, or indeed the 1960s when it looked at the time much more like they were on the brink of a second civil war. It has been through those things and it has rebounded. But definitely at this stage, it is in problems. A lot of its problems are also structural to do with the system of governments, the impossibility of passing legislation, state governments, some of which have just turned bad, like California, but also a crisis of decades of underinvestment in infrastructure. A real problem with American government is that it's been just wound down centrally. And you can tell that when you go to the country, crumbling bridges, crumbling roads. The world's greatest superpower does not have an effective, efficient interstate rail network. And it has the Seller Express, which goes up and down the northeast coast. That's pretty much it. That's extraordinary. So there is this sense of exhaustion in the superpower, which it needs to fix. And what about these issues, the wider issues in the West, where people are arguing, and I've spoken to many people on this podcast and other places, that the West is in a permanent state of decline. And the reason for that is we've seen a decline of religion. We've seen the rise of social media. We've seen huge divisions in politics. I've mentioned that already. This rise of identity politics with sort of neo-Marxist kind of beliefs where elites have been taken over. And you talk about the Democratic Party's elite being taken over by these groups of people and not just the Democrats, but big tech and media companies and all these other culturally elite institutions have been taken over by these people. So does the West face a crisis of declinism in a more broader sense, not just America? Uh, Well, first of all, some of the things you've listed as problems in the West are Western. So the rise of neo-Marxism, Marx is a Western thing. These are hardwired into Western identity, the very things that sometimes are perceived by conservatives as if they are a sort of foreign invasion or a virus are part of being Western. And I'd include identity politics in that, the obsession with the victim. A lot of this is a hangover of Christianity. This is Christianity minus an eschatology. This is Christianity without the belief in a lot of these things, the green stuff, the identity stuff. These things are not antithetical to being Western. These are part of being Western. Secondly, they've been around a very long time. If you went back to the 19th century, you would see a lot of the same complaints being made in the mid to late 19th century. Things like Christianity is dead, People were convinced in this country Christianity is on the decline because of Darwin, because of archaeology, because of science. It seemed as though atheism was on the rise, Jacobinism, socialism, things like that were going to replace it. Keir Hardy said a lot of people are leaving the church to join the Labour Party in order to become better Christians. That was the way people saw it, that you'd have a sort of post-spiritual Christianity. A lot of those problems are still there. One of my favourite thinkers, Max Simon Nordau, writes about the 19th century being a time in which people are simply exposed to too much stuff. And if you read him writing about how people were assaulted by images, assaulted by words, by constant, fast-developing events and news, uh, Nordau could be writing about 9-11, that sense that we in the West have seen our decline in real time, and it's rapid and getting faster, and it's overwhelming us, and we feel useless, and we can't turn it around. But then the West did. The West, if the West is liberal Enlightenment values, The West won its war against itself in the Second World War. It won its war against itself against communism. Again, Soviet communism, Western idea. So it's a civil war, really. So the West is constantly battling itself. And in that lies the seeds for its reinvention and rediscovery because it's constantly contesting itself. You can see these fights against identity politics as depressing, which they are, frustrating, which they are. But it's also a sign of the extraordinary vivacious, uh, extraordinary, uh, inventive nature of Western identity. You don't tend to have these arguments in China. 
not just because of communism, but because of the nature of East Asian society. You have them in the West because we're constantly, as left-wing academics like to say, contesting our identity. And that's not an inherently bad thing. We go back to that point about when's the best time to be alive, 60s and 70s, and I, I would argue that it, it seemed like in the period of decline, actually life was getting better. There's an argument for saying that's true of now, that much of our intellectual debate and much of what, us tearing chunks out of each other is not necessarily a bad sign. And it, it, it shows that intellectual life here is a hell of a lot more interesting, believe me, than it is in Kabul right now. I'd rather live here and endure, uh, <laughs> endure the debate about statues, endure the debate about what is a woman, what isn't a woman. I'd rather have this problematic contest here in Britain than I would living in Kabul. If we look at entirety of human history, you talk about freedom, people wanting freedom in their life in China, for example. Is that not ahistorical because people, you know, historically freedom, the enlightenment as we would see it, has only been around for a few hundred years and yes. people don't, uh, this isn't a natural state of how people organise societies in the West. So perhaps it's not a sort of inherent thing for people to urge for these values that we take for granted. No, absolutely. And here in the West, as soon as there was an external threat to life and limb, we gave up on all those freedoms. And we did so telling ourselves that we're doing it in order to preserve those freedoms in the long run. But we were also for many years said those freedoms were absolute and were non-negotiable. And actually we threw them all out of the window. So even here in the West where apparently enlightenment values and the individual and liberty are baked in, even here those things in the right conditions can be thrown out. And that's very worrying and it, makes it, it must force us to become more critical of ourselves to know uh, that under the right circumstances we could sustain a benign dictatorship here too. You're absolutely right. That nature of freedom, we shouldn't take it for granted. It is a, a philosophy worth making an argument for. And trying to persuade Chinese people of that philosophy may be an uphill struggle. They've been indoctrinated by the regime since they were born to yes. believe in nationalism, right? And, they, and the Chinese regime would say, look at the West, look how chaotic it is. Look at America, it's in decline. Look at Afghanistan, look at all these other issues. Look at um, these terrible internal divisions that they're having. And this is total chaos. And then look at China. We've had growth for so many years and we're united and we have one voice and we look far stronger on the world stage. So perhaps people won't be persuaded by no. Western chaos. And also that their current system is, uh, in some regards, this will be controversial, but I think it's probably as Chinese as much as it is Marxist. Uh, it's certainly heavily informed by Confucian ideas and culture. Plus, they're not just looking at the West and trying to avoid our mistakes. They're thinking constantly about the mistakes of their own history. The divisions within China, which was partly allowing in the polluting idea of pollution of foreign ideas, things like Christianity in the 19th century, which led to huge rebellion. They, they would perceive the decline of Christian power, opium, things like that. They're worrying also about repeating the mistakes of their own history. They're not just looking at us all the time. We're so darn parochial here in the West. We think everything's about us. Everyone wants to be like us. Everyone's reading us and obsessing about us. Given this freedom, if you just step out the way and say to them, build your own society, we shouldn't assume like Rousseau that they'll want to be the noble savage as we in the West perceive Well, just look it. at Afghanistan. They, they may well rebuild it in a way that defines freedom in, in very different ways to us. I mean, to, 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 to the Taliban... Freedom is submission to God's rule. Some Democrats are saying and now describing Trump voters and Republicans as being equivalent to the Taliban. And they're saying yes. these people aren't evangelical Christians. They are, they are basically terrorists who have this kind of religious conviction to do evil. So how do you respond to that? I mean, maybe you're like the Taliban. <laughs> uh, well, no, no they, what the evangelical Christian would reply with by saying they're, they're, they are the complete opposite because what they're trying to do is preserve life. And they believe that that is the first liberty, the liberty to live. 
and that after that you have absolute freedom in most other regards, but the first and most important freedom is life, and they would point out that terrorists don't tend to have that attitude and are quite willing to take life. Uh, so they would say that really the comparison doesn't hold at all. What are your sort of solutions to the problems that we've talked about in this podcast? Have you got any, not quick and easy fixes, but some fixes to the problems in society in Britain specifically? I have absolutely no policy suggestions whatsoever. I mean, I do, I do of course. What I about have, cultural suggestions? I, have, I, have, I mean, of course, there are things that I would like to see fixed. There are, there's reforms I would like to see made. I believe, uh, not to go all hippie, but change begins with oneself. To coin a dreadful phrase, you have to be the change you want to make. That is how things will really change. They will change by people dedicating themselves to something that matters and dedicating themselves to other people. Uh, that's what will really make a difference. Have we uh, lost that? Uh, No, we haven't lost that. People are still doing it, but we don't talk about it anymore. That's the change. Uh, What's gone is the language. That's where I think the West is in danger of declining and dying, is its cultural inheritance, which is really a religious inheritance. We have lost the language. We have lost the ability to articulate and express things. And when that is gone, once you lose the language, like a child that doesn't know the words for things, you can't say what you want, and therefore you can't get what you want. And I think that's very troubling. If you're at home and you're watching this video on YouTube and you just keep seeing the same things, Tucker Carlson every single night saying everything's a disaster, please give people a reason that, uh, that it's not all a disaster. People who think it's all a disaster are one of those groups of people who've forgotten themselves. It is un-American to give up on America. It is the city on a hill. And it's always going to recover because it is guaranteed by God and by grace of nature that it's going to recover. If you are British, it is un-British to give up on yourself. Have you not heard the phrase stiff up a lip? Uh, there's that wonderful moment in Karen up the Khyber when the palace is being assaulted, the empire is collapsing all around them, and someone says to Sir Sidney Rough Diamond, what are we going to do? And Sid replies, do? We're British. We'll do nothing. And finally, it is un-Christian to give up. Despair is a sin, because when you despair, it means you've lost faith in God's capacity to fix everything. You've lost faith in your own resurrection. You've lost faith in Christ's victory over sin and death. So I never despair. You, you complain, you point out things that are wrong, you worry about them. Of course, you get depressed about them. But it is unwestern to despair, which might be one reason why, when we finally remember that, we win if there really is a competition. The thing that might help us to win is faith in a system which has improved many people's lives and made things infinitely better across the world. So that is why you should have hope, because it's silly not to. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.